Major Lindsay in Africa presents Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. Welcome to Erasing the Stigma, conversations about mental health in the legal profession. I'm Mark Yacono, your host, and this podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay in Africa, the global leader in legal recruiting. My guest today is an extremely gifted lawyer who is a partner with Lewis Brisbois. He is both one of the most innovative lawyers in the country with respect to leveraging technology and process management to handle large-scale litigation. He has also been one of the most progressive leaders in the legal field with respect to promoting mental wellness and mental health. Tom, um, I'm thrilled to have you. And in the interest of full disclosure, for a period of time, Tom and I were actually partners in a former life. And um, I'd love for you to give the audience an overview of your, your background so that we can get into our discussion about wellness. Uh, sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, so, Mark, thank you for having me. I, uh, as you said, I'm a partner at Lewis Brisbois, resident in the New Jersey office. Lewis Brisbois has uh, somewhere approaching 1,500 lawyers. Uh, we are spread across 52 offices around the country. And uh, I joined Lewis Brisbois in August of this year, uh, having come off an 11-year tenure at uh, LeClaire Ryan, where Mark and I were partners. And um, in that, it, during that tenure uh, at LeClaire Ryan, I uh, held multiple roles uh, from uh, industry and client team leader to uh, office leader, practice area team leader, and at the end, I was the office leader of two of the offices of LeClaire Ryan, and I was the litigation department leader overseeing about two-thirds of the lawyers uh, at LeClaire and the staff that supported them. Well, that is certainly uh, a big job that you had. And I know that during the course of your leadership, you kind of took a, an approach that mountain wellness was was an issue to be addressed and that there could be or were lawyers in under your under your supervision who were struggling and i want to know how you began to become aware of the topic and of that fact and, and some of the things you did to kind of create an atmosphere of acceptance and and, and inclusion sure so uh, i've been aware of uh, mental health and mental wellness issues uh, since i was in college uh, the fraternity that I am a, a, a brother of is uh, uh, one that has that was very progressive even in the late 90s uh, or early 90s rather uh, about mental health issues. Uh, we had our our own uh, program within the fraternity uh, that dealt with mental health issues, uh, including everything from depression and anxiety to substance abuse. And uh, it's sort of been something that I have uh, latched onto and kept with me uh, ever since. And, you know, when I was in law school and when I was early in my career, the, the statistics uh, that I was seeing on these issues were uh, sort of staggering. I mean, there, there were um, statistics out there, even in the, the mid and late 90s, that uh, lawyers were suffering from anxiety and depression and other mental health issues, uh, and particularly substance abuse, in uh, percentages that were uh, wildly different than the general population. It was, it was being estimated that 
one in four, one in three lawyers was suffering from anxiety or depression, that one in three were suffering from substance abuse. And, uh, you know, it was a real problem. Um, I myself had issue, had an issue with an adversary who was, um, you know, not responding to uh, various uh, correspondence, not responding to motions. And it turned out that he was uh, truly suffering from uh, a, a very bad mental health issue. Um, it was uh, heavily, he was heavily depressive and lost his entire practice as a result. His practice went into receivership and, um, you know, the courts were, you know, could only do so much with, uh, with his cases because, you know, there was, there's fairness to the other side as well. So, um, you know, I have, I have come across this issue over the course of my career. Um, it became more, it came more to the forefront, I think, in the last five years or so, because uh, it's, it's really starting to turn that uh, dealing with mental illness and dealing with mental health um, is starting to not carry the stigma that it used to. And it's evident by any number of things uh, not the least of which is the fact that we are doing this podcast. Um, you know, we are able to talk about these things in the general public without um, much of the stigma that it used to carry. It doesn't so, mean Tom, if I can, um, if I can ask, what do you think the the environmental factors or the societal factors that have uh, have helped shape this paradigm shift where mental illness can be talked about more openly? Because I think you're right that it's it's less stigmatized, though still stigmatized, but the fact that you and I can have this conversation is, is indicative of a change in thinking. What do you think were the things that, that sort of began the turn to, to a better place? So I think that that one of the major things that has changed is a uh, concentration on emotional intelligence amongst leadership. Um, that was a shift that's probably 20 years old um, when the ABA and DRI and other organizations like them started talking about the need for emotional intelligence amongst our leaders. Um, you know. When, when I first started and when you first started, Mark, and when many of our generation of lawyers first started, we were dealing with uh, attorneys in, in senior leadership who were expected to be, you know, everything. They were expected to be excellent business people. They were expected to be rainmakers. They were expected to understand the business of law. They were, under, they were expected to be excellent lawyers in, and out, in their own right. Um, those are huge expectations and expectations that, you know, probably are, were too high for just about anybody. And those expectations were placed on virtually everyone. If you wanted to be a partner who made a lot of money or was very successful at the firm that you were at, that was the expectation. And I think that started to shift when I think I was, go ahead. I think that the way I like to think about it is when we started, which is carbon dating ourselves, unfortunately, um, we were almost like medical residents, the perception of medical residents, which was that the the inequities and the pressures and the sort of 
trial by fire um, indoctrination into the profession had to be passed down to us if we were truly to you know go through a rite of passage. And it seems like there is a more holistic view of how to retain, keep, and nurture associates now that that might be going on and tying in with your your thoughts on emotional intelligence. Uh, I think that's right, and you know there's there's a practical side to this too. Um, it started to become uh, much more well known what the practical cost was of turnover at a law firm, and. Uh, you know, large, starting with large, certainly the largest firms and then uh, trickling down into large and medium-sized firms around the country, the fact is that the statistics started to come out about just how much it cost when you raced through associate after associate after associate and burned them out and ran them out of the firm. And, uh, you know, the cost is significant. So, um, while I would love to say that it's simply a kinder and gentler uh, world that we live in, that's not really the case. Um, it's certainly something that is more at the forefront of people's minds, but there is a practical cost to uh, having associates or attorneys who burn out, who retire, who go to do something different, um, who, God forbid, do something to themselves that they, you know, can no longer practice law or that they, they kill themselves or whatever. So, you know, there is a huge practical cost. And I think that has, has also added to this paradigm shift that we were discussing. Well, and while it may not be the most holistic view of human development, the fact that there is a practical cost and it's a driver of change it's something that I personally am okay with because now, despite the motivation, it is driving change in a positive way, even if it's not the most altruistic um, motivator for change. The fact is, is that it, it is stimulating the need for firms to do something. Agreed. Um, and, you know, the, the prevalence of social media is a double-edged sword with this. Um, on the one hand, uh, social media adds pressures, uh, particularly for people who are anxious or depressed. Um, while social media, it, it's, it's sort of counterintuitive, while social media is uh, a, a way to engage with the world, it, is also, it also has a tendency to silo people and uh, actually push them away from people in real, uh, real personal interaction. And I think that somebody who is uh, prone to anxiety or depression, uh, that has a real effect on. Um, but the positive side of the prevalence of the internet and social media is these stories get out. So um, there's a, there was a story last year by a woman named Joanna Litt. Uh, it was uh, published by uh, law.com in uh, November of last year, and it was called Big Law Killed My Husband. Um, yeah, it's, that it's, got a lot of attention. It did. And, it, you know, it, it was obviously written about her husband, Gabe McConnell, who was a Sidley partner, uh, a bankruptcy partner, who ultimately killed himself um, because he essentially worked himself to death, at least is the premise of, of the article. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's the, the, the article is, is masterfully written, um, and it's a, it's a beautiful tribute from, from wife to husband and sort of an angry tribute towards, towards big law. 
Um, but it's a, you know, it's, it's a cry for change. Um, and, you know, one of the most telling pieces of the article, I reread it this morning, is, um, you know, she picked him up from work, um, convinced him uh, that he needed to, to take a little time off, uh, picked him up from work. He said that his body was starting to fail him. She suggested he goes to the emergency room. And he says, I can't, I'll lose my job. You know, he's, well, he basically said, this is the end of my career. If I go to the emergency room, it's going to end my career, which meant that his alternative was that he's going to kill himself instead. Um, that's a horrible place to have been in. The, 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 you know, you can only imagine sort of the dark depth that he had, he had, he had gone to at that point. Um, that article, that article, frankly, was haunting. It was. Um, it was. It and was and anybody, you know, anybody that's been uh, a trial lawyer, anybody that's been uh, a, a bankruptcy lawyer working on very large bankruptcies, um, in, in you know your neck of the woods, people that have done you know very large uh, uh, document reviews where there's a there's a huge time crunch, you can see getting to this point. Not getting necessarily to the point where you're going to want to kill yourself, but getting to the point where you are fully and and completely exhausted, where you see no other way out, where you just think you need to trudge through. And someone who's prone to depression, that's going to bring you to a very, very dark place. Um, somebody that's prone to anxiety, it's also going to bring you to a very, very dark place. Um, and unfortunately, what we see in the legal industry and what we have seen in the legal industry for decades, probably better than a century, is lawyers are tremendously good at self-medicating. So they're feeling the stress, they're feeling the negativity that goes along with being a part of this profession. And there is negativity to the profession. It is, you know, adversarial at its very basis. And uh, the way that they handle it is self-medicating. And that's, you know, that, that's a, a huge problem uh, amongst uh, attorneys in our industry uh, and has been for decades. So one of the real issues or questions, not issue, question that I have for you is that there is a sense that people can be high-functioning depressives, which means to me that they can be greatly depressed and the rest of the world doesn't necessarily notice, partially because they're not attuned to the signs, um, especially with respect to men in the profession because depression symptomology manifests differently. So as a practice group leader, how did you sort of dial in to this issue um, when, when, when there could, could have been and probably were people in your practice group struggling, but they weren't demonstrating it at that point, all of the signs of a, a full major depressive episode. What was your uh, what was your sort of touchstone for kind of being attuned to that issue and people that might might be struggling? Because I think it's fascinating how dialed in you you are to this, and, and I'd love to hear kind of how you how you um, tuned your antenna. Uh, sure. So, um, I think initially it was um, it was a rather uh, legalistic view of the problem. And that was, um, you know, I, I internally performed a, a legal analysis. I have statistics on my desk 
that say one in four lawyers suffers from either anxiety or depression. I have statistics on my desk that say, you know, depending on the study, somewhere between 20% and 33% self-medicate or have a substance abuse issue. And I am now responsible for 210 lawyers. It is practically impossible that one of my lawyers is not suffering from this with those statistics. It, it is far more likely that um, dozens of my lawyers are suffering with this and dozen, and particularly, as you said, dozens of the male lawyers are, are, are dealing with it. The statistics are worse for the male lawyers for various reasons that have nothing to do with um, the legal profession and you know, also reasons that do have to do with the legal profession. Um, and you know, the fact is that you know, you know, I make jokes about being Irish and Catholic, which means that I just push all of my, all of my emotions down and then someday I'll just die. Um, and uh, you know, but that's not how you know, people necessarily deal with it. And uh, you, know, you have to have some understanding of what's going on in your own brain in order to react appropriately to these kinds of stresses, what I'll call situational depression. You know, situational depression is, is less of a problem. Situational depression is, um, you know, depression where you're dealing with uh, a family event, death of a family member, or, um, you know, something that's happened at work where you feel like it's your fault, you know, maybe you're, you're, you're putting too much pressure on yourself for that, whatever. Um, but that's not really what we're talking about here. We're talking about major and clinical depression where it's chronic, where it's uh, something that somebody's dealing with over and over again. And your point about high-functioning depressives is an important one. So, for example, we think about, you know, the things that make um, lawyers good at what they do. They tend to score very high in pessimistic thinking. Um, and that leads to higher success rates. We are the ones you call when you are feeling good about something, you know, you're feeling good about a deal that you're about to make and everybody's in the honeymoon period and we're the ones who reign on your parade and say, okay, but what's, what are you going to do if it doesn't work three years from now? And that's what makes some of us, you know, makes a good deal lawyer is, you know, I'm counseling you about what's going to happen three years from now if everything goes south. I'm hoping that nothing goes south, but if it happens, I need to be prepared and I need to make sure it's in the document, right? That's, a, that's just an example. Well, that, those higher scores in pessimistic thinking also correspond highly with depression and anxiety. So, you know, you have these issues, you know, particularly amongst high-functioning high people. So I locked into it because, you know, purely from a statistical analysis. You know, there have to be people that are struggling and I'm not seeing it. And I'm not seeing it because we don't have uh, enough uh, things in place to bring it to the forefront, whether it be um, safe space in terms of talking about it, whether it be connections with mental health professionals, whether it be um, you know, uh, events that don't have, um, don't have alcohol, uh, you know, those sorts of things. We don't have enough of that to bring that to the forefront. But from a leadership perspective, what I found was nobody wanted to talk about it. 
and I, and I don't mean our leaders, but you know, the leadership was not talking about it to the people who were who were struggling. I want to just jump in for a moment because I'm I'm really pleased that you made an important distinction between situational depression, which can be handled much more effectively than people who suffer from clinical depression. Because I think some of the literature that's focused on the environmental factors in the legal industry that 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 maybe promotes depression and anxiety have really kind of focused on situational depression versus major depressive conditions triggered by brain chemistry. So I'm really thrilled that that um, you made that distinction because I think it's important for people to realize that there's a component of this that's a biological disease. I'm also fascinated that you started with a statistical analysis. That is a very unique position that I hadn't heard before. So as I understand it, you, you did the statistical analysis and, and statistically speaking, you recognized there had to be people struggling and that's when you realized there was probably a lack of awareness, you know, in terms of who those people were or how to help those people. Is that a fair characterization? Uh, yes. And um, there was a uh, there was a, a an absence of an avenue for those people to express themselves in a way that was not going to damage their reputation within the firm, was not going to damage their reputation outside the firm, and uh, was was going to lead them to treatment that they might need. Now, certainly, some of those people were probably being treated. The, you know, the, there are you know the the number of people who are being treated by psychologists has never been higher. But you know, the fact is that you know I you know I felt sort of compelled to make sure that the people who were sort of under my umbrella and other people within the firm, you know, you didn't, you, you, know, it, you know, nothing was confined to the litigation department. Um, but, you know, people needed to understand that they could raise their hand. And if they raised their hand, nobody was going to cut it off. You can raise your hand. You can tell us that you're having a problem. You can tell us that you're struggling. And we will maintain that in a confidential way, in the same way that if you raised your hand and told us that you were having, you know, an issue with cancer, or you were having an issue with diabetes, or you were having an issue with lupus, or whatever. Um, and, you know, you're right. The, you know, what, what a lot of the education that has come out over the course of the last couple of, decades, couple of years, you know, certain, certainly a couple of years, but, you know, probably the last decade, is that people are starting to understand as a more universal proposition that the words I am suffering from depression are not synonymous with I am sad. And that, you know, I think has been the largest breakthrough that the definition of what depression really is has become more ubiquitous. And this, you know, well, I'm sad, and I can point to this event, which is what what is making me sad. And I'm sad that that person is gone, or I'm sad that you know that this has happened. That's, you know, that that's something that you know, as you said, can be much more readily treated, and is much more um, fleeting. It doesn't make it better; it's just fleeting. Um, the chemical stuff is different, and it has to be treated differently. And you know, some people need 
medication for that, and that's not a bad thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Better living, better living through pharmaceuticals. I'm all for it. Um, and if you can do that, and that's going to control the problem that you're having, whether it be bipolar or anxiety, or um, or you know straight depression, that, that's great. Um, but you still need to have an understanding and an ability to self-treat, self-diagnose, and understand what's going on with your own mind. And sometimes that's educational. So you know. That brings up an interesting question because, in my mind, it's unfortunate that the biggest dispensers of antidepressants and antipsychotics are general practitioners, internists, and that medication isn't being driven to the psychiatric community and isn't being paired often with counseling. And I guess one of the things that I wonder is how did you how did you sort of help people migrate into the mental health system and be beyond their family doctor? Well, I, I think that, you know, that ends up being, you know, very case by case. Um, you know, as you develop a program, it, you know, if you're going to develop a program within your firm and have that program uh, have an education component, which it absolutely should, then you can do it from an educational component. You can do it from an educational perspective and talk about, you know, those issues. Um, one of the big issues that I think a lot of people um, face, even, you know, in this industry and, and everywhere else is um, the insurance industry hasn't quite, the health insurance industry hasn't quite caught up. So um, very often uh, therapy is excluded from your insurance coverage. If it's not excluded, it's, it's you know, paid at such a low rate that uh, most practitioners will require you to pay above what the insurance is paying. And, um, you know, in, certainly in some areas, Manhattan, uh, probably Washington, D.C., you know, San Francisco, Los Angeles, um, you know, those therapists can be hundreds of dollars an hour. And if the insurance industry is going to continue to pay $60 an hour for, for, a, uh, for a counselor, you're going to continue to have people with mental health issues that don't seek counseling. Um, so, uh, you know, from, a, from, an, from an educational perspective and trying to get people um, angled into the mental health industry, you know, number one is through education and number two is um, through availability making yourself available to talk about these issues to individuals on a one-on-one -on -one basis. Um, you know, look, leadership is a lot of things, um, and it, it, it can be different things to different people. But, you know, in, in the end, leadership is service. You're serving the people that you're leading. And if you are not prepared to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone who is struggling with anything, whether it be with their own compensation, with someone else within their office who's, you know, giving them trouble, with, um, you know, with a, a boss that is, is being, you know, too type A for the, for the person that they have um, and make those, make those distinctions or a mental health issue, then you're not in the right position. You should be doing something else, um, in my view. Maybe it's my own humble opinion, but, you know, that's, that's my view. So, 
if you can make yourself available and that is your mindset that you are a you are a service to the people that you are leading then a lot of these things tend to fall into place and um, don't necessarily need uh, a, a structured environment um, but uh, even if that's not the way you see leadership or that's not uh, how the leaders in your firm see leadership there are ways to do this and you know structurally uh, what I often did as a leader if I was not available to talk to them one-on-one -on -one, and I am NOT a mental health professional by any stretch and I don't I don't pretend to be um, but if I need to talk to them one-on-one -on -one or I'm not available to talk to them one-on-one, -on -one, I would refer them to HR. But I have that conversation with HR beforehand. You know, look, if somebody comes to me and I can't talk to them, I need to refer them to you. So you need to set up that network early on in any kind of program that you're going to put on, whether it be a formal program or, or an informal program. And you need to make sure that all of those people provide that safe environment. So that you know, that's that's a huge thing from my perspective and from a from my leadership perspective. That's that was a huge thing for me. How do you define safe environment? For instance, how do you define having people in the firm that are, are safe people to go to versus someone's problem escalating right up to you know presiding partner, managing partner um, level where where someone may not be comfortable having that having their problems surfaced that high within the organization. What's your definition of a safe environment? So from, a, from my perspective, a safe environment is one in which there are people who can be effective in getting what you need done. So in this, in this case, uh, having a number of people that, that, that a struggling lawyer uh, can go to that can be effective in getting help in whatever form that needs to be. Now, that can take many forms, but somebody who is effective and somebody who is not so high up in the chain that it carries the specter that it is going to impact that person's career. One of my mentors and, and the, the CEO of my old firm, Eric Gustafson, is one of the nicest men I, I've ever met. And if somebody came to him and told, them, told him that they were struggling, uh, he would sit with them for as long as he needed to sit with them. However, when he became CEO of the firm, uh, I would imagine the number of people that went to him and started talking about the fact that they were struggling with mental illness probably dipped significantly because nobody wants to go to the CEO of the firm and talk about the fact that they're struggling or talk about the fact that they might not be able to um, be successful in the adversarial situations that they need to be in. So, you need to have someone that can be effective, somebody who's high enough in the organization to be effective both within the organization and in assisting with the mental health, and also not so high that it, it carries that stigma of being uh, uh, that, you know, if this person is not uh, accepting of my problem, that it's going to impact me adversely uh, here in my career. What was the, what, what were some of the positive stories that came out of taking this perspective and doing the analysis and engaging HR and other stakeholders, what were some of the positive things? How did the lawyers respond and, and how willing were lawyers to come forward and um, take advantage of 
this accepting environment you, you were working to create? So, uh, you know, I'll, I'll fall back to my statistical analysis. Um, if my firm was, um, was on par with the statistics, I would say that we had uh, a fair and middling response uh, to it. Um, because look, just providing a safe environment isn't necessarily going to make people comfortable with making these decisions, um, with opening up, um, with, you know, to, to, to use the term from, from a, a, a different group, you know, you have to essentially come out. You have to say, you know, I, I'm having, a, I'm struggling. I'm struggling with anxiety. I'm struggling with depression. I'm struggling with substance abuse. Um, you know, the, the um, you know, e you know, sticking with the substance abuse piece, you know, one of the, you know, the first thing that you have to do at AA is tell everybody your first name and say out loud that you are an alcoholic. Um, that's hard. And that's the reason that it's the first thing you have to do is because it's hard. And because the first thing that you have to do is accept it. So um, we got good response. You know, we got a number of associates, a partner, you know, a, a, a few partners who, you know, raised their hand and said, you know, look, I'm, I'm, I've had some struggles or I'm having some struggles. And, uh, you know, uh, some, and, and frankly, some of the feedback was, was more along the lines of, um, I do struggle. I don't always struggle, but I do struggle from time to time. And, you know, frankly, it's just important that I know that I can come talk to someone. Um, so, you know, just opening up the line of communication got a lot of, a lot of really good feedback. People that actually asked for help, that was uh, a smaller number. And it was, you know, a smaller number for all of the reasons I think that we've already talked about. Um, although I would love to say that, you know, that, that there were just, Fewer of a, fewer of the of the people who needed needed the help, um, you know. Statistically, that's probably not true. Well, I think that goes to the point that there still is stigma and in, in fear. Yet at the same time, it shows that if you try to normalize the fact that people do struggle, they will at least engage in conversation. So, whether or not you know people got the kind of treatment or fully accessed, fully accessed the environment and the, the mechanisms you set up, you know, it's fair to say, at least from, from, from this armchair quarterback, that you probably impacted a fair amount of people positively and more than you would have if you hadn't taken this approach. I hope that's true. Well, Tom, I know you have to get to court, speaking of pressure, and um, <laughs> um, you have been extraordinarily generous with your time, and you've shared so much thought on this topic. Um, you know, uh, like you, I was a major practice group leader, and I wish I had perhaps been more sensitive to these issues because we put our associates and our discovery practice through a lot of pressure. And I'm sure some of them, statistically speaking, were suffering. And um, I wish I, I had um, 
had when I was in practice, this um, perspective that you bring to the practice, because it can only benefit the people around you. So I'm very grateful to have had you, and um, good luck in court today, by the way. Thank you, Mark. Um, and, and have a great weekend, and thanks again. I hope you'll um, stay in touch with us and we can continue this dialogue as um, your journey and our journey um, pro progresses. Thank you. That sounds great, and uh, thank you for inviting me on. This has been Erasing the Stigma, Conversations About Mental Health in the Legal Profession. My guest today was Tom Regan, a partner at Lewis Brisbane, and as you can tell from the content and quality of our dialogue, a really deep thinker on the topic of mental wellness in the legal industry. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing other great guests to you in the near future. Discover how Major Lindsay in Africa can help you navigate the legal landscape at www.mlaglobal.com.